Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is a composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and anthos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self or the true self. So if you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our show, we talk to leaders who went through the process of clearly understanding their true selves and articulating their core values. These leaders make decisions and take actions that are always consistent with those values. Our guests take us through their journey of self-discovery, share their successes, and are candid about their challenges. And because authentic leadership requires engaging your whole self, we also talk about how their personal passions connect with their professional life. Today, we leave the corporate world to look at a different side of leadership. Erin Barra is the director of popular music at Arizona State University. She's a songwriter, producer, instrumentalist, music tech consultant, an educator, and a creative entrepreneur. In short, she's a true bright product of the volatile music industry. Erin has adapted and reinvented herself countless times. On the way, she established herself as a courageous leader and as an advocate for groups that are normally disenfranchised in the music business. She founded Beats by Girls, an organization that empowers young women in music technology, a field traditionally dominated by men. As the executive director, she grew it to 20 chapters in six countries and three continents. She's also the global chair of education and technology for women in music, the industry's leading nonprofit working towards gender equity. We're also lucky enough to catch her at the key juncture of her journey. Erin just left her position as a songwriting professor at the prestigious Berklee College of Music, arguably one of the top two or three music schools in the world. She chose to do that because she's going to a large state school where she's starting a new program that conceives music education in a way that makes it accessible to a much broader population. In an incredibly rich and candid conversation, Erin gives us an inside view of the reality in the music business. You will hear about some of the challenges that may not be apparent to outsiders. She touches a multitude of topics, finding her identity and coming to terms with a big shift when she decided to abandon her career as an artist to become an educator. The power of helping other artists fulfill their dreams. The parallels between managing the environment in a creative discipline classroom and creative culture in a business setting. And as she outlines her vision for her program, she makes it clear how decisions ranging from curriculum definition to admission criteria can impact and expand the social reach of a program. Of course, we close with the expressions and cliches that drive Erin crazy. But also, you will hear about the connections between fine wine, science fiction, music production, and the design of education. So here it is, Erin Barra. Why don't we start, you know, telling us your story and some of the things that, that you have done? Well, thank you for having me. Um, it was 1985. Now, um, it's, it's kind of a long story, so I don't know where to begin, but to kind of truncate it. I, I did an undergr- undergraduate from Berkeley in the early 2000s. And after that, I was in New York City, just primarily pursuing a career as, a, as an artist. And it wasn't going very well, mostly because I didn't have the resources or the information to get the job done. And and when I say that, I mostly mean 
access to technology um, and, and the knowledge as to how to operate it to, to make music. Even though I had gone to music school, I still had no idea what was going on. So I had to go through this sort of self-renaissance, if you will, where I taught myself how to use Pro Tools and then subsequently Ableton and Logic as well and learned how to make records. I mean, this was right around the time when a lot of tutorial content made its way onto the internet. So, I mean, it wasn't very good then. Let me tell you, it was like a lot of interpolating the spirit of information from multiple sources and kind of tacking something together. But I, I ended up teaching myself pretty much everything that I wasn't taught at Berkeley. And subsequently just sort of accidentally became a leader in a space because there's a lot of people that were in my same situation, especially female artists um, who were kind of at the mercy of other people in terms of when things were happening, what things sounded like, how it was happening, you know, the amount of money it was taking. It just, it's a really powerless position to be in, in some sense, in some senses. And so, you know, once I just decided that I was going to figure it out and make it happen, I did it. And, you know, next thing I know, there's 10 other people who look like me who are asking for help. They're like, can you teach me how to do this? Can you show me the way? I need someone like you to explain it to me who understands me. And so I sort of inadvertently became a visible person in music technology because there weren't a lot of people like me doing it at the time. Right. It was a time when it was assumed that the engineer and the technical person and the producer would be a man. I mean, I think that in some ways that's still the general assumption. Uh, it's it's changed a lot since then. But yeah, absolutely. Nobody, nobody was doing that stuff. That was a woman, at least not in any visible sense. Like, of course, there are women doing these things, but they're they're sort of like tucked away, if you will, and not given that same sort of visibility that our male counterparts might be given. So, you know, I just stumbled into music tech and it was all because I just wanted to make music. You know, and that's kind of been the bottom line of everything is that, man, I just really needed to make music. So <laughs> what do I have to do to make that happen? So from, I went from artist to, it was it was really more like a—I don't even know what I would call it because it wasn't formal education in any sense of the in any sense of the word. It was just like consulting randomly. I started helping other women learn, um, producing shows for people because I was using electronics live on stage as well. I wasn't just producing my own music, and yeah, then I started an organization called Beats by Girls, and it was really—it was interesting to me because. There was a day, and this was a really hard day for me, but I realized that people were way more interested in how I was making music than listening to my music. And that was a tough pill to swallow. Um, but then actually, once I swallowed it, that's when all the good stuff in my life started happening. <laughs> so actually, that's a really interesting point, because one of the things that we that we cover into this show is, you know, making the decision to figure out exactly what is important to you and what is, you know, what, who you're going to be. And sometimes these decisions come out through some hard conversation or hard moments. You t take me through sort of like the process that you went through and as that realization came through and, and what were some of the challenges? 
Well, I think the biggest challenge was it was just an identity crisis. You know, I had identified as an artist for so long and like those words, that, that title or that word artist, I think it means something different to everybody. But in my own personal narrative, it meant that I only made music and that people <laughs> wanted to hear it and that I performed it and people came to see me do those things. And, you know, that was almost my entire identity. And so when you start saying that people don't see you that way and that they actually see you this other way. And, you know, maybe you're not supposed to be an artist or that's just a small piece of who you are. And that's, that's what I ended up realizing. But at the time it sort of felt like I was being threatened. Like my identity was being threatened. Um, and so, you know, at first I just really pushed back against it. Like this is okay. I'll do it, but it's but it's always in the service of me as an artist, right? That like one one hand had to hold the other at first, and you know, once I got to the end of making my third record, like my manager at the time, I had a publicist at the time as well, and it was like they were t trying to tell me something without telling it to me in a way. They're like, well, you know, you're, you need to, you could wear these shoes and we think you'd do it really well. Like walk this path, become a leader in this space. And, you know, one day we just, I just sort of threw my hands up and was like, okay, you know what? I'm not even going to try to sell this record or promote it that way. What we're going to do is... We're going to raise money to start some something called Beats by Girls and we're going to help other women learn how to make music with technology because that's what everybody seems to want from me. And, you know, we, we put an Indiegogo campaign together and it was kind of frightening how immediate and overwhelming the reaction was to that. Um, I mean, we were, we were overfunded before the end of the the fundraising period and we had been picked up and incubated by a much larger nonprofit at the time. And somebody even gave me a job. They're like, okay, we want your program. We want to do this. And will you be the audio programs manager at this very large nonprofit? It was called the Lower East Side Girls Club. That was my first real job, <laughs> you know, outside of like bartending and waitressing and stuff like that. So it was just really clear that this is, this was where I was experiencing traction in my life and with what it was I was doing. I started working for a lot of other companies. It's strange because at the time I didn't see it and I always felt like it was just going to be over at any moment. You know, and I think that's part of working in the arts, just that overwhelming like narcissism layered by complete self-doubt and delusion. <laughs> uh, but I... You know, I started working for Ableton and they were hiring me a lot to do representation. And I was going around talking about what it is I was doing and telling people how to do it. And it's interesting how it's all sort of the same thing. It just kind of manifested itself in different ways. Like whether I was working for a corporate entity or a nonprofit or an individual, it was like people just wanted me to unlock access for them somehow, whether it was to their own music making or to other opportunities. So I, I see that now, but at the time it was, you know, I just was waiting for everything to kind of fall apart at all moments. And then one day, Bonnie called me, who is the chair of the songwriting department and said, listen, I need somebody who has your skill set, who knows songwriters, who knows 
what it's like to go through this type of life, but also understands technology and do you want a job? And then I accidentally went to Berkeley. <laughs> What's really interesting to me in your journey is that, uh, you know, there, we are all, you know, in, in, in our personal and professional life, we all end up at some point with a pressure where what we think we want is not what the market wants from us. And while there is a moment that you can do that and reap the rewards of the market, if that doesn't become true to you, it becomes really hard to be sustainable. And so I'm interested in, as you are, you know, taking on more and more in these jobs and, 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 and doing these things that people are asking you to do because you're good at them, how, you know, what was, how did you start figuring out that actually that was more than you giving in to other people, but maybe there was like a, you know, a true and authentic you that was coming out in that process? It took me a long time to come to that conclusion. And I think that partly it's to do with the way that the music industry works and like a scarcity mentality. It's a really competitive place to be on whatever side, you know, on the creative side, on the business side, it's, it's just a doggy dog, sort of a, sort of a business like many businesses. Um, and so in a way, when I was helping other people, it sort of felt like I was doing myself a disservice, you know, I'd say, oh, well, there's now there's more than one woman that knows how to do this. And so at, in the moment where I was actually doing something that now I see as a very powerful move, I perceived it as a threat at the time. Um, and I think that most, you know, people who are marginalized in whatever capacity, we all suffer that from that same scarcity mentality. Like this is a, there's only this much of the pie available. And if, if you're taking this much, then there's that much less for me. So it took me a while, but I think once I had been at Berkeley for a few years, I realized that my real power is in helping people. And that by being that person who facilitates another person to succeed, that that is actually one of the most powerful positions that you can be in because everybody's coming to you. They, they want you, they need you. Um, and that's what I always wanted as an artist in, in a strange way. It just manifested itself in a way that I did not anticipate really. But I'd say I was maybe 32 before I realized what was going on. At what point did you, do you, did you go from, you know, I can help other women learn how to make music because there's a market demand to, you know, taking sort of the next step, which is, you know, your, your desire about community organizing and really doing it not because from the times we have told in, in the, you know, in the past, I really get a sense that now there's a mission connected you know the idea of going from i'm doing this because women are paying me to do it to i'm doing this because it's a cause how did that transition happen and and you know and when did you really start embracing it hmm. i don't know I, I feel like this idea of community service was always 
a part of my, I mean, it's a part of my origin story, right? Like even with my mother and my family, there was, we were a part of a group called the National Charity League and we would do like certain number of hours in service of others. And my parents are, you know, big time Catholics. And it's always about like being a part of a community and helping everybody else. So that's kind of just the way that I was brought up in a sense. And so it's weird to talk about because in a way, Beats by Girls and all this activism stuff, it really came from a place that was almost just fear because of what was happening to my artist career. But it 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 morphed. Like I there's no part of me that gives back to the community because I'm trying to get recognition in any, you know, sense of the word. Um, but I don't I don't clearly know when that happened. It just always felt like something I needed to do. And I still like, you'd be surprised at how hard I have to fight sometimes, even to be taken seriously by myself. So I think that the fact that I still have to struggle with it, you know, even at whatever level I've reached, that it it just fuels me in a way. Like I'm just mad. I'm still mad about it all, you know, that we are not authorized to do things that I believe we should be able to do. Yeah. And that's in some ways, that's a even more powerful position than in, in being an artist. It can be. <laughs> it's, it's a, there's a lot, it's complex. Let's say there are layers to it. <laughs> so obviously as you, you know, progress through your career from somebody who was an artist and then was teaching other artists on how to produce and then became a professor. I am assuming that as you are working with younger artists, there's more to it than just the technical and technical side of it. What are some of like the key important lessons, you know, as it relate to artists as they're developing or songwriters that you work with? that, you know, that did you pass on to them? There's a, there's a few. <laughs> I think that creating culture is a really important thing in a classroom and in a workplace because you want to facilitate people to be their best selves, right? And you can do that through, like through fear, you know, some, some people use fear in the workplace or in the classroom to make somebody deliver. Um, but I think that artists in particular and or any emotional being for that matter needs to be needs to be treated as such like you really have to meet somebody where they're at right and I, th I think that's what really great leaders do in a sense is you know understand an individual and then react accordingly and for songwriters um, they need to feel supported and heard right so it's a lot of creating a space where people feel comfortable and able to be vulnerable and to talk about their feelings. Cause that's, you know, it's, that's music, that's art, it's like feeling feelings, right? So creating a space where you can do that is important. And that's not to say that there's not a place for constructive criticism or, you know, real pressure to grow. But I, I think that those things in my classrooms and in my workplaces, they're not mutually exclusive. Like there can be a certain level of excellence and then simultaneously the ability to be empathetic and um, emotional at the same time. And so 
that's important to, to, to pass on to students. And I think that that's something that you do through every, every word that you use when you're choosing them or the way that you use your body, the way you stand, the energy that you give off to people. Right. And that's, it's hard. It's like not something you can teach necessarily. It's just a, just a way of being in a sense. Um, but in the other side of it, and I think this is true in, in workplaces as well, it's like if you forget why you're doing something or if the joy has somehow escaped the equation, like it, it doesn't make any sense, right? So I'm constantly reminding them and especially at a school like Berkeley where the rigor and the competition is so high that like if you have lost the joy that you had initially fostered in making music because you went to music school and now it became something more serious, then you are not doing something correct. So I make a really concerted effort to have assignments that almost require a sense of like silliness or, or joyfulness that you have to, you, you can't do it. You've done it wrong if you didn't have a good time doing it, right? So when you create joy in a workplace or a classroom and you create a culture where people feel comfortable, and then, and then you push, you know, then that's like this joyful expression of growth, you know, and that's, that for me is, that's where it's at. At least that's where the good stuff comes, especially for artists. So let, let me quickly rephrase some. So basically, I think what you're saying is that you need to create a safe space first to then be able to kind of like push them because as a professor, you're still accountable for their development and, and, but you're dealing with, you know, a creative individuals who may have, you know, so it, it takes us like, it's this fine balance of on one hand, reminding them that their art is worth it, but on the other hand, like helping them keep themselves accountable to make the most of their art. Was this, would this be a good rephrasing? Yeah, absolutely. When you when you do that, and then when it comes down to it, let's say if somebody's sharing their work and you give them a piece of constructive criticism, they take it totally differently as well. It's it's like a it's a gift almost. <laughs> you know, they're like, "Thank you. I'm going to do better." Um, where in other other circumstances, it can feel like a an attack. You know, and so. It is. It's just a, it's a really delicate balance. Right. Because for our listeners who may not be familiar of how a songwriting class works, you know, most of the time students come with their creative work and then they're sort of the work is criticized publicly by both the teacher and the peers. So this is something that I think could have a lot of applications to the work environment. How do you regulate the participation and the the peers, because on one hand, you want to make sure that, you know, it doesn't become gratuitous or abusive. But on the other hand, in a creative class, having participation from everybody is what makes the learning happen. I mean, I think you have to set certain norms before you even begin, like having conversations about what is good feedback and what is not useful feedback. Um, and so... You know, and I model it. There's always logic or reason. And if somebody, I mean, there's so many good examples of bad feedback. One is, wow, that was so great. <laughs> that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. I mean, it's a, that's a positive piece of feedback as well. And so often I'll, I'll just 
I'll probe. I ask questions. Why? Why was that so good? I don't know. Her voice was just, it was so lovely. I just liked it. Why? Well, you know, and and then it's, I think once you start to challenge people, you can find out information by asking why over and over. And then on bets on both sides, you know, if somebody's like, I didn't like that. Well, why? Um, And, you know, once you start really trying to get at the root of it, um, unless people know what they're saying or have something useful to say, they usually will just keep it to themselves because they know that I'm, I'm going to expose or search for the reasons why somebody would say something. So you've had a long enough professional career that probably at this stage, you do have a sense of like, what is your leadership style? What's your approach to leadership? So what is important to you and how, you know, how do you define your leadership style? And what are some of the leadership qualities that you look for in people that you want to work with? I am really thinking about my leadership style a lot these days because I am a director now of, you know, at a a really large institution. Like Arizona State University is massive. And so I've really been sort of rethinking because it felt it felt almost like a reset button in a way on my life by taking this new position and you know, it's it's from the ground up. It's a brand new program. So I've really been thinking, you know, what, who is the, the next iteration of Aaron as a, as a leader? Um, but if I was going to say a few things that I know for certain is that I think that leadership as it pertains to me is collaborative. That, you know, I want to empower the people that work for me or the communities that I work with to feel like they also have equity um, in, in what's going on. So a lot of my leadership style, again, it's, it's sort of that like asking the questions like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And how can I facilitate somebody to do the things that they want to do and, and be strategic so that we all reach our goals together? So... You know, I think of it. I think I think lead is a verb, right? Um, as as opposed to a noun. And so, the act of leadership for me is really similar to what I said before. It's like meeting people where they're at, finding out where people's strengths are, and then giving them access in order to do the things that they need to do, so that you know, optimally, we have a common goal. <laughs> uh, you know, whether that's teach a class or. Um, create something together, you know, and, and, and I've been in leadership positions that are purely artistic, you know, where we're running a group of creatives, like technical creatives and more musical creatives and, and putting that together. Um, and then it's, it's, it's a, it's a really tough balance to strike because I think that by being collaborative, sometimes I sabotage myself as a leader because sometimes people don't, sometimes it depends on who you're working with, but they don't want, like they want to be led, you know, different types of personalities work really well with the, the act of being empowered and others um, don't. And I had to learn that pretty early on that some people are more self-actualized than others um, and will step up and others will not. And by asking them to self-identify what it is that they want, that they recoil. (laughs) I think what you're speaking to is actually optimizing the talent that is available to you and understanding 
what are the conditions that you need to put everybody to be in to be productive? You know, and in some cases, if you are being very directive with somebody who is motivated and independent and are leaving somebody who wants to be directed completely to the road and you're, you're going towards a catastrophe. You said something at the beginning of this that I want to go back to because you are now in a position where you're not only redefining your own leadership, but because of the choice that you have made, you now have the opportunity and the challenge to shape a whole program and think about the impact that it will have on your community, on art in general, et cetera. So when you started thinking about how to tackle it, what are some of the steps that you took and some, you know, advice that you would give to somebody who is also sort of in a greenfield moment? It's, it's all about vision, right? And not to say something cliche, uh, but, but it's, it's, it's the same with songwriting, right? Like if you, if you know what the song is about, then making the right musical choices to support that decision, it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, and with this, with this, I mean, one of the big reasons why I left Berkeley to come to Arizona State was that one of the things that I needed to do was put forth a vision for the program. You know, they're like, what would you do if, if you, if it was up to you, what would you do? And it was so easy for me to put that together, oddly enough. And p- part of it came from the experience of knowing a lot about what I wouldn't do, um, you know, just from having been in a lot of different situations. Um, and so in some ways it was like a reaction to the way that the inequities I saw in the world, especially as it pertains to music education. Like we can't be doing things this way. Like, this is wrong. Um, and as a reaction to that, it's like, okay, well then what is right? What do we do? And I put forth what was an extremely progressive vision document. Um, and I just thought to myself, I have nothing to lose here. You know, it's like, what would I do if it was a perfect world? And one of the main reasons that I ended up taking the position was because that vision was so wholeheartedly accepted. They're like, yes, this is what we want. This matches our charter and, and the things that we say are important to us. You have shown this in your vision as well. Let's do that. <laughs> and so, you know, it's this like now that I know what the vision is or the concept is, it's just a matter of making decisions that support that, you know, along the way. And obviously you make compromises and things take longer and they cost more or whatever. But I have found that to be the key. <laughs> so I think what you said is incredibly powerful. And would it be fair to say that the vision reflects the most authentic you in terms of what you believe in, in terms of education? Absolutely. Take me to the moment when you, when, you know, when they're like, yes, we want to do it. And you're looking at like, I have a chance at delivering what I really believe in. What's that feeling? It's, it's awesome. And it's one that keeps happening to me. Um, you know, leaving a place like Berkeley is hard. It's hard to do that. Um, I think it's referred to as golden handcuffs of some sort. You know, it's like, okay, this is a great job. And and just to clarify, I think for people who are not familiar with the entertainment industry, leaving Berkeley is like being a professor at Harvard Business School and going and starting a new program at a state school. I mean, this is essentially what Aaron has done. 
So keep going. Yeah. And it was, I don't know how to say some of this stuff without sounding like a total asshole, but I was doing really well at Berkeley. You know, I was like one of the most popular faculty. I was I was being enabled and facilitated to do things that were really cool and that you would never get to do at another school. You know, like it was it was hard. It was tough to go. I'm not going to lie. But then once I once I had made the decision and it took me a little while to let go mentally. And then I keep having these moments where it just, it's exciting. It's like, this can be whatever I want it to be. You know, like I'm in control of my destiny, which is, which is a feeling that, you know, you don't really get to have as an artist for like a long time. I was saying in the beginning, I was just always waiting for something horrible to happen. Like the ground I was standing on was going to collapse at some point. And this is one of the first times where I've really felt super powerful and that's nice. You know, success and power. <laughs> I guess we're all in some narcissistic human way, like in search of these things. Um, and it feels good to be able to do what it is you want to do and what you think is right. There's a question that I always ask in the podcast and I think you kind of like stepped into it naturally, which is what is your definition of success? Right. Um, it has changed a lot for me over the years. Um, when I was struggling in the music industry, I had lots of false narratives of success, you know, it'd be like, oh, and then a residency at the bitter end or, oh, and then a publishing deal, you know, and then I would get those things and dangle the carrot just a little further outside of my reach. So it was just this constant, you know, I would never feel successful, even if I got the things that last week I defined as success. And um, right at that time when I pivoted towards, you know, being a little bit more behind the glass, if you will, and started Beats by Girls, I had this really profound shift of success. And I, I worked this out with my manager at the time. You know, we decided that success for me would mean that I would be only working in the music industry and that I'd be making enough money to be comfortable. Like I didn't need to have a lot. I just needed to survive in the field that I wanted to be working in. Um, and that I wanted to be able to make music that I felt was creatively satisfying in some sense. And that I wanted to be happy. <laughs> like that was it because I was miserable before. I was absolutely miserable. It's like, okay, if I, if that is success and it really was, you know, for that first big step that I took and, and that opened up all the doors for me because before it was like, you have to be an artist. You have to get this. And it was so dang specific that I was, I was closing a lot of doors on myself. And so when I shifted to that much more broad definition of success, I got it really quickly. Like I'd say within six months, which is crazy. <laughs> and now I, I've shifted it again um, where for me success, and, and this is just like, it's more emotional, I guess, if you will, that I, I mean, if it's financial as well, you know, I want to make enough money to live the kind of life that I want to live. And as I move through different 
parts of my life that changes. You know, like me as a 22-year-old person doesn't care about the same thing as me as a 36-year-old person cares about, obviously, and like providing a life for my children, stuff, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I kind of upped the, anti, the ante in terms of my lifestyle. Um, it also, success, success means to me that I have a job that facilitates me to do the things that I actually care about and that I want to be spending time doing. And then this is going to sound really strange, um, but it's back from that scarcity mentality. For me, success means that when I hear about somebody else winning, especially if I, they identify, if I identify as somebody similar to them, that the only emotion I feel is pride, like pr- being proud and happy for another individual, like shedding that sense of competition that the music industry embedded in me, that's success. And I'm, I'm really close to that one. <laughs> Quite close. <laughs> I, I just want to go back for a second. I want to go back to the vision for the program. You know, what are sort of like the three or four things that are really, really important for the program to accomplish and, and things that you feel you're doing different than other schools or other places are doing that, that are important to you? One of the big differences is that it's, it's, it's about breadth as opposed to depth. And a lot of music schools, it's about specialization and becoming like an expert in your field. But the, the reality of the music industry is that people end up doing, like their careers are collages. You know, it's like, I produce, I write, I teach, I perform. I also have this other job at a nonprofit that teaches little kids how to make music. It's just, it's not one thing anymore. And so we're doing a disservice to students to say, you should get really good at songwriting, which is what happened to me. You know, like I could play the piano really well and I could write songs really well. And those are the two most unemployable skills you will ever have in your life. (laughs) And so I just, I don't think we're doing the right thing. So... The program is, you know, it asks people to be good at a lot of stuff. Like here's, pick three things that you're interested in doing, um, whether that's performance and production and business, but like, let's drill down on those. Let's, let's get what we need to get and really create lifelong learners because that's the key to life, I think in general, that like the answer is not a specialization. It's, it's an, the ability to learn and adapt. That's really like a super valuable life skill that is valid whether you're in the music industry or whether you're into any other industry. And I think, and it's almost like a very advanced way to think about the education that you're delivering, whether it's in music or whether it is in other fields. What are some of the other sort of core elements of the program? So, I mean, because of that diversification um, of expertise, it's, it's super flexible. So what that inevitably does is give the student a lot of agency in order to be in control of their own education. You know, and, and most, most educational systems are hierarchical where it's like more of a pyramid, right? Where you like climb to the pinnacle and then, yay, <laughs> you did it, right? Where this, this is more of a hub and spoke model. Um, and that's, you know, that's just like another sort of structural almost like business concept where there's this concentrated experience that they have and then there are several diverging paths because, I mean, in any business, like nobody's going to teach you or no one's going to tell you what to do at a certain point, right? And especially when you enter the music industry, nobody cares about who you are or is going to tell you what to do. So like by implementing that into the program to say, what's important to you, you need to make these decisions 
And it's up to you to do that. Like in kind of baking in the sense of responsibility from a student perspective early on, um, I think is unique. A couple of the other things, um, you know, the program admits students who don't identify as instrumentalists. Because I think that musicianship is, it's abstract these days, you know, and a lot of people express musicianship through technology, through traditional instrumentation and otherwise. And so as long as somebody can express their musicianship to me in an audition, even if they have only been making tracks on a, on a application on their iPhone, like if they've got the juice, then you can come to my program at ASU. And I think that's really different for a lot of music schools as well. So, you know, it's just like being more inclusive of, of who we I d define as a musician and who gets to have access to this type of education. That definition of musician, by definition, gets a much broader base of type of students from both backgrounds, et cetera, right? Yes. I mean, especially at a place like Berkeley, and this is another reason why I ended up leaving, is that it's extremely, extremely exclusive. You know, not only from a financial standpoint, but even to cross the threshold or the litmus test for an audition to be accepted, you have to have such a high level of proficiency, which assumes a certain amount of formal education up until that point. And formal education assumes a certain level of financial resource, you know, and, and, and then that there's racial components to that. There are, you know, economic components to that. And so, you know, I think, I think it's problematic. And so I, I wanted to create a situation and I just, I just admitted like four students there's a there's a place here in Arizona called Rosie's Place, which is basically like a community center for kids to go after school before their parents can come grab them. And they have some interesting music offerings for these students. And there's this one kid who he's like, yeah, I, I took bassoon lessons for a semester. And then I learned how to play the guitar for a semester. And then I just started making music on this Dell, this weird program I'd never even heard of incredible musician could not name a note on a staff if you threatened his life with it. Um, but he is a hard worker. He took every opportunity that was given to him. He's a fantastic musician and he's going to do great in the program. He would never get into Berkeley or any other, you know, music school that, that kind of subscribes to a patriarchal hierarch hierarchical system. Well, that is great. Um, there's a lot of fascinating concepts and ideas, I think, in, 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 a lot of, in a lot of dimensions. So if I were to ask you to synthesize and pick like sort of three lessons that you could pass on. Hiring the right people is really important. And I think that that's one of those sort of like innate spidey sense, like go with your gut type of things. Um, but like asking the right questions of people and really understanding what it is you want somebody to do and what you expect of them and hiring accordingly. I mean, that's, that's half the battle, right? Like the people that work with you and for you, if they're the right people, then that's going to make a big difference. Secondarily, I think it's really important to listen to those people once you've hired them and allow them to do what it is they're really good at. And I guess that seems sort of like common sense in some way. But like I was saying, my leadership style is relatively collaborative. And that 
makes it so that like, if you're not listening to somebody, whether it's something they said with their words or with their actions, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So I spend a lot of time really tapping into the people that I work with and how they're reacting and what they're trying to tell me. And I listen and I act accordingly. And I, you know, I think especially as culture shifts and it's like, man, if we haven't had one hell of a year of culture shift, um, it's, it's important to create a culture in your workplace where people feel safe, you know, and, and, and that, and that just helps you because then they'll feel safe to tell you when something's wrong as well, you know, and, and you need to hear that. Like I need constructive criticism and feedback just as much as people that work for me do. So I make a really concerted effort to create a safe space. And I think that's the activist in me, actually. It's like women have been historically marginalized when it comes to access to technology. And the way that you give them access is by creating a safe space for them to come and learn and I've carried that through into my leadership practice where I'm going to create a safe place for us to all work together. And I guess that maybe sounds like some hippy dippy shit to some people, but I, you know, I find it to be like the reason why people want to work for me. You know, like I had a lot, I have a lot of people that are asking me for jobs for a million reasons right now. Um, but just in general, like people want to work for me and that is a nice, it's a nice feeling and it works. Well, this, these are excellent, excellent, excellent lessons. So, you know, I have a question that I always ask and it's what are your passions outside of work and how do they influence work? Is there anything that is not related to music and, you know, that you do that is an important part of your life and how does it impact your life? I read. <laughs> I read sci-fi. Admittedly, I am somewhat of a workaholic and that's something that I'm trying to fix because I think I don't have enough outside of my work life that really fulfills me in that sense. I mean, I, I, I used to for sure. For, okay. So for me, it's like, it's food and wine. That's really it. Like really good wine paired with the right type of food and the right type of people. Like that's what I live for outside of work. Um, not that that's happening to me that much anymore since I can't see anybody and I'm pregnant. So that's, all, I, all I can do is eat. But yeah, I think food and and wine is a big is a big one for me. And I really just enjoy that. And it's one of those moments where I actually am not thinking about work. And the other is, is yeah, I read, I read sci-fi. It's almost like escapism in a sense. Like let's pretend like the world is not the way it is. And just live in this fantasy. And actually I use the analogy of making records and making wine a lot because these are complex systems, you know, like making wine is the most variable thing in the world. It's like the weather, the soil, the people, the age of the vines, the, um, you know, it's like just when you picked them, what did you do to them after you picked? There's like so many ways that things could go wrong. And that that sort of idea of excellence through complex systems, it just, it really resonates with me for some reason. And I think that that's kind of why I like leadership in a, in a way. It's like, wow, if you succeeded doing something like that, like you've, you've really done something right. Okay. Final two questions. The first one is, you know, we, there's a business lingo or expressions that you hear over and over. And we all have one that makes our toes curl and our hair go, woo. Is there an expression that drives you crazy? Hmm. 
there's a couple. I'm really sick of hearing people say, let me unpack that. <laughs> it's just, it almost, it seems like in the beginning it was meant to be like a moment where we could actually take some time to think about what something meant. And I, I liked that philosophically. It's like, oh, let's not jump to conclusions. <laughs> let's think about something. But now now it's almost become this sort of like passive aggressive um, deflection of responsibility. And yeah, it, it's really bothering me when people, when people, or let me unpack that for you. Like it's, it's, it's just become condescending and passive aggressive in, in a way. And I don't like it when people say that. And there's a lot of that in academia and art, <laughs> um, which you probably is not surprising. The other thing that bothers me, especially in the the like social, I'm going to use the word justice, so, social justice work is the word justice. And I, I, I use it a lot. So if it's a powerful word, you know, uh, and I, I often use the word, the phrase technology justice because it, it riles people up, you know, and it gets people to listen in a sense. I'm just seeing it a lot now in different places where I just don't find it to be the proper use, right? Like gender justice or, yeah, you know, like in any context, people are just kind of tagging it on to the end of something to make it feel like it's a cause. Um, it's sort of like weaponizing morals in a sense. And I'm, I'm not enjoying that. Well, these are very insightful thoughts. <laughs> it, it, it was interesting that in your hobbies, you mentioned science fiction and food and wine, because the final question of the podcast is always, I always give people an option to say, give me either a food for the body or a food for the soul or both. So, you know, if either a dish or wine that you particularly love? Is there a book or any piece of art that has resonated and spoken to you? I mean, so, so much food and wine and books. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm reading Neil Stevenson novels, <laughs> like going through all of them, which is going to take me a long time. Um, but you know, speaking of extremely complex systems as well, his books like Cryptonomicon or Snow Crash. I'm reading something called Anathem right now or Seven's Eve. Like they're incredibly complex and lengthy. <laughs> so I, I'm into I'm into those and I like my wine that way as well too. I'm I'm more of a red drinker, like really complex. Cabernet Sauvignon, like a nice balance of body and velvety lightness. It's, yeah, it's like, it's all things all at once. So I guess it's interesting how there's this recurring theme about liking complex things. But yeah, I think you should all grab a Neil Stevenson novel, crack a bottle of expensive Cabernet Sauvignon and just relax for the evening. <laughs> I think that's an excellent <laughs> note to close on. Aaron, thank you so much for being part of the podcast, for being so open. I think there's so much uh, in this conversation that will be useful to people. Thank you very much. This has been a great episode. Yeah, thank you, Dino, for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review. Tell a friend or tell a few friends. Subscribe and post about it in social media. You can find Aaron on our website, mamabera.com it is spelled m-a-m-m-a-b-a-r-r-a with two m's and two r's you can also find Aaron on all the usual social media sites just look for Aaron Barra spelled e-r-i-n b-a-r-r-a as it is tradition at the end of the credits I am going to share a song 
If this is not your first episode of my podcast, you know that normally I share a song by my wife, Susan Catania. But today, because we had a songwriter, I am going to share a song by Aaron. You can find me online at al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. So al4ep.com. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. This episode was produced and recorded by me. The theme music is composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is the song by Aaron. It is called Dawn. Enjoy. To the truth, but I'm alive again, alive again, and I'm alive again, alive again. I'm alive again, I'm alive again, I'm alive again. Take me of an instant that never made sense and it never will know I found out the lies, the truth the power of silence and howling at the moon Truly 